Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Just wanted to thank everyone who has left reviews in the last couple weeks on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Facebook, and those of you who have rated this show on Spotify, because yes, Did you know that if you're listening on Spotify, you can go in and rate it five stars? Listen, I truly appreciate all the support. If you've just caught on to the show or if you've been around for a hot minute and you haven't dropped me a note on Apple Podcasts or haven't rated the show five stars on Spotify, please today just take a minute to do so. This really does help me in my ratings. And honestly, it helps other potential listeners know whether they should give the show a try. And while you're there, just make sure that you click subscribe, follow, or the little plus symbol. That way, as soon as I release a new episode, you are the first to know about it. And finally, if you're looking for new ways to support the show, check me out on Patreon. You can find me at patreon.com slash military murder. There, you can get your episodes completely ad-free, starting from episode one. And on top of that, you get 20 full-length bonus episodes right now and new releases every single month. I mean, if you sign up right now, those 20 episodes should be able to get you through a few road trips, PCS season, and even your hard workouts. All right, on with the show. Today's case is a doozy. This case has been in the works for over six years. It's hard to believe that a non-cold case case would take that long to resolve itself. But this case has some pretty interesting legal nuances that will leave you scratching your head and wondering, what in the world was the Navy thinking? Join me today as I tell you the tragic story of the murder of military spouse, Johanna Hove Becker. Now, let's dig in. Before I begin, a quick shout out to one of my patrons, Mara for assisting with the research and writing of this very difficult episode. We use the following sources in forming this episode. Two U.S. Navy Marine Corps Court of Appeals decisions, one from 2020 and one from 2021. And we also focus on articles written in the San Diego Tribune, Military.com, Task and Purpose, Daily Mail, and more recently, Stars and Stripes. Johanna Hanna Elizabeth Hove was born in Stockholm, Sweden, on April 30, 1983, to her parents, Yvonne and John Hove. Her father, John, worked as a judge in Sweden before he became a successful businessman and moved the family to Florida when Johanna was only six years old. Johanna was an ambitious person, and after she graduated high school, she continued on to pursue a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of South Florida and she didn't stop there. Oh no, the ambitious woman she was, she also went on for a master's degree in psychology at the same university. Even though Johanna was very busy pursuing a career, 
There was still time for love, however, and it was while she was still in school in Florida that she met and married a Navy sailor. His name, Craig Becker, and he served as a military officer, specifically working as an EOD expert. EOD stands for Explosive Ordnance Disposal Expert. As reported by the Navy Times, Craig enlisted in the Navy as a deep sea diver in 1999 and commissioned in 2007. Johanna and Craig were married in 2008 in Destin, Florida. After getting married, the couple continued with their ambitions, Craig with the Navy and Johanna in her field of psychology. She finished up her master's degree and became a licensed psychologist in Norfolk, Virginia. There, she served as an advisor to the court and conducted psychological assessments. A few years later, in 2011, Johanna started her own company called Day One Wellness. Mara tried to find information about this company now, but the information is scant. What she did find online was information about Day One Wellness on a website called loveliveson.com. And on that website, it notes that Day One Wellness in Norfolk served as a grief counseling service. Now, I just want you to keep that in mind because when you learn what happens eventually to Johanna, it really makes for an even sadder case. Johanna and Craig really seem to be hitting a stride in their relationship. A beautiful couple, promising careers, but with all things military, well, marriages are often made to endure long separations, and things were no different for the Beckers. In 2012, a year after Johanna successfully started her business, Craig got orders to deploy to Afghanistan. As most military spouses do when their loved one is deployed, they try their best to distract themselves to make the time pass more quickly. Johanna focused on her business and it was thriving. Soon Craig was home and Johanna welcomed her war hero with open arms. You see, he really was a war hero. While deployed, Craig received a Bronze Star with Valor citation for his valor in an enemy fight. Specifically, one day Craig was on a mission when his strike force was pinned down by enemy fire. He positioned himself on a rooftop where he shot at the enemy and then provided cover fire for his troops. Of course, Johanna was very happy to have her husband back in her arms. They tried to settle into married life again, but you know, that darn military life got in the way again. It was 2013, and this time, Craig got PCS orders to Mons, Belgium. Craig had been reassigned to a pretty sweet gig with the NATO headquarters in Belgium. And for those of you not familiar with the military, the military lifestyle consists of frequent moves, also called permanent change of station, but we call it PCS. And you can be located anywhere, including outside the United States and, of course, inside the United States as well. For some, the constant moves are a blessing, but for everyone, and I mean everyone, it is usually a pretty stressful situation to just pick up and leave, especially for the non-military person in the relationship. In some instances, spouses actually choose to stay behind for various reasons, but in most cases, they follow their service member spouse wherever they're assigned. And in this case, despite her very successful career stateside and her thriving business, Johanna decided to follow her sailor to Belgium. Despite her decision to leave her career behind and to move to a foreign country thousands of miles from friends and family, Johanna couldn't have foreseen that from the moment that she set foot in Belgium with its beautiful mountains and marvelous historic towns, it would bring her more than she had ever bargained for. 
because after starting her new life in a foreign country, she soon realized that she was facing another challenge. Her marriage was on the rocks. On August 8th, 2013, shortly after their arrival in Belgium, the couple spent their night in a U.S. Army hotel. At about 11 p.m., while Johanna was sound asleep, she was suddenly awakened by her husband, dragging her out of bed. Apparently, while she was sleeping, Craig snuck onto Johanna's computer and snooped through her emails. There, in the emails, he found messages between Johanna and a former Navy buddy of Craig's. When Craig read the emails, it suggested to him that Johanna and this so-called friend may have been having an affair. Boiling with rage, Craig decided to drag Johanna out of bed to interrogate her about the emails. But if Craig thought his wife was going to deny the allegations against her, he was wrong. Because astonished as she was, Johanna immediately admitted to having an affair. Johanna's confession, though, fueled Craig's rage even more. And as soon as the word divorce was mentioned, a physical struggle ensued. Craig hoisted Johanna up like a child, carried her to the bed and held her down while strangling her. Johanna survived the attack and reported the incident to multiple people, including the hotel clerk and the military police who responded to the hotel. Of course, an investigation was started and Johanna retold investigators what happened that night. But she further elaborated that Craig took her identification and credit cards and changed all the passwords of their bank accounts, essentially leaving her stranded in a foreign country. She also told investigators that this wasn't the first time this happened. Things had turned physical with Craig approximately four or five times prior, each time escalating a little more. But the day after Johanna made the formal complaint, her and her husband attended a counseling session. And well, Johanna decided to recant the entire story. When investigators asked follow-up questions about her initial allegation, Johanna was like, no, no, no. And she defended Craig saying he was only trying to keep her from hurting herself. She basically said she reported the incident because of the medication she was on. And without their main witness, well, the investigators had nothing to go on. And the investigation was closed in June of 2014. The appellate court opinion indicates, however, that while Johanna recanted the story to investigators, behind the scenes, she told friends and family that Craig had in fact attacked her and that she really and truly feared for her life. In fact, she told people she recanted to preserve his career, especially because she was afraid of what he would do if he lost his job in the military. Now, this is not uncommon in cases of domestic abuse and definitely not uncommon when we're talking about a military spouse attempting to protect their spouse, especially a military officer. But as oftentimes occurs, a person will recant their story to authorities. But like I said, behind the scenes, they tell their loved ones and those closest to them that the incident actually did happen. According to court documents, after the affair, after the strangling incident, after the investigation, and after the recant, Johanna and Craig stayed together, but it was never the same. Craig started to control Johanna's social life by limiting who was allowed to visit her. He dictated the way that she should dress. He monitored her phone usage. And one time he even destroyed her cosmetics, aka her makeup. But despite all of this, 
Despite being stuck in a marriage that was dogged by domestic violence and the constant feeling of being watched, there was a small light shining at the end of the tunnel. On June 12, 2014, Johanna and Craig were blessed with a beautiful baby girl named Isabel Luis. With the birth of their child, Johanna held on to hope that their marriage would work out. But even the birth of their beautiful baby girl couldn't save an already broken marriage. And it turns out that Johanna began to see a man at work. In September of 2014, Craig learned of Johanna's affair. And after talking it out, the Beckers did something unexpected. The Beckers decided to separate. And on September 18th, 2015, Johanna and Craig signed a separation agreement. The separation was amicable and Johanna had moved on with her life, deciding to stay in Belgium so that she could co-parent Isabel together with Craig. That September, things got a little more serious with Johanna's boyfriend and she was about to sign a lease for her own apartment. She began spending a few nights a week with her new boo in late September. Now, just so everyone knows, at this point, Johanna and Craig were still living in the same apartment, just in separate bedrooms. But things appeared to be looking up for the new mother. While her marriage to Craig didn't work out, she was happy that they met because he gave her the most beautiful gift ever, her daughter. And with that, she was looking forward to closing out this chapter of her life. And as things were ending, Johanna and Craig decided to meet for dinner one last time. On October 8th, 2015, Johanna signed her new apartment lease and paid her deposit. And then she met with Craig at the apartment they formally shared. They had dinner, but then at around 9 p.m., the night turned into a nightmare when Johanna fell out of the apartment's window, which was on the seventh floor. Johanna's horrifying screams were heard by many bystanders. Outside the building before the fall, however, witnesses heard a woman screaming, presumably Johanna, and she was screaming from a very high window, and she sounded what bystanders are saying that she sounded panicked and afraid. A nurse who was taking out her trash at the same time saw the woman who was at the window tilt backwards and fall, hitting the building as she fell. She then saw Johanna grab the edge of the window, trying not to fall, but she was unable to hold herself. And that's when she plummeted, bouncing off several balconies on her way down before hitting the pavement. A couple heard the initial screams, then cries for help, then the thud of a body hitting the ground. And as soon as the fall occurred, a 50-year-old bystander said a man had just pushed the woman out of the window. After the fall, the initial couple who heard everything looked up, and that's when they saw a man looking out the window towards the woman on the ground. Then he vanished. After a while, the man reappeared, but this time he was at the ground level, but he didn't seem too concerned. He was on the phone. The man was Craig Becker. He wasn't crying, he wasn't sad, and the witnesses described him more as nervous. Once he got off the phone, he went to the woman on the floor, which at this point we know is Johanna, and he spoke to her. When the Belgian police arrived at the scene, they spoke with Craig, and Craig told them that his wife had jumped from their bedroom window after drinking wine and taking medicine. Craig explained that after dinner, he put her to bed, but later, while he was in a different room, he heard a scream while he was on the phone. Craig took police up to his apartment where he showed them the window where Johanna had fallen out of, 
And upon further investigation by police, the window revealed marks on the outside of the window left by Johanna's fingerprints, almost as if she tried to stop her fall. In the living room, police found Johanna's cell phone. And while still at the scene, they asked Craig if he knew the password to unlock her phone. And he said no. But this would later turn out to be false. Investigators did later find that Craig had not only lied about not knowing Johanna's password, but he told his father-in-law, Johanna's father, the following day, that her last words to him while she was laying on the pavement was, quote, you did this to me, end quote. But Craig denied that he did anything, and he denied various things that eyewitnesses said they saw. For example, he said he never looked out the window once she fell, which, what the hell? It seems only logical that if you see someone jumping, falling, whatever, out of a window, you're going to go and look. And why would the bystanders lie? I mean, what would be their motive to lie? Also, who the hell is looking out of their window at 9 p.m. at night? No one. That's who, because Craig, you're a dang liar. The entire thing smelled real fishy. But after a brief investigation, the Belgium authorities ruled that Johanna killed herself. This was clearly a suicide, according to them. Ugh. But listen, when a toxicology report came back, everything in this case changed. Johanna's toxicology report indicated that her blood alcohol level was negative, but she did have zolpidem, and high level of tramadol in her system. Tramadol is a morphine-based pain reliever, and zolpidem, which I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but that drug is a sedative, and it comes in the form of a small, round, pink pill. When asked about his wife's medications and whether these were prescribed to her or anything like that, and why she would be taking these, Craig, through his attorneys, said that Johanna suffered from mental health issues. But Johanna's parents vehemently deny this. They told the Union Tribune that Johanna suffered from an eating disorder as a teenager, but that was quickly resolved and she didn't suffer from any mental health issues since. And if this were true, then I guess this really did beg the question, why did Johanna's toxicology report come back with those drugs in her system? And if what Craig said about her being an alcoholic was true, why was there no alcohol in her system at all? Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. 
Which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. After the toxicology report findings, the Belgium authorities had to go back and reconsider their initial determination of suicide. It just didn't seem likely that this was a suicide if she had all of those drugs in her system. Was the fall an accident or was it something more sinister? In order to evaluate their initial determination, the Belgian authorities reconstructed the crime scene. And in doing so, they concluded that the crime scene made it appear more likely than not that Johanna was pushed out of the window by her husband while Johanna was, get this, unconscious. And from this point forward, the theory of the case is that Craig drugged his wife and then shoved her out of the window. And with this, Johanna's death is reclassified as a homicide. The Belgian authorities immediately charge Craig with murder, but his attorneys jump in and they offer a new theory with the help of their own forensic experts. Now, I'm not a physicist, so bear with me. But the defense experts in this case argued that had Johanna been pushed or just simply fallen from her seventh floor window, she likely would have survived, which, by the way, she was not dead on impact. She did later die at a nearby hospital. But in any event, the defense theorizes that Johanna likely climbed to the rooftop and then jumped to her death or potentially she fell while contemplating suicide. But this theory about the rooftop doesn't really make sense considering the odd placement of Johanna's fingerprints on the seventh floor bedroom window. But while all this is going on, and while both the Belgian authorities and Craig's attorneys are debating Johanna's cause of death, which, what the hell? Shouldn't that be something duked out in the courtroom? Ugh, anyway, while all of this is happening, in the background, another debate continued. And this one was quite interesting, and it was the issue of jurisdiction. A jurisdictional battle, you ask? Yes. Remember, our story is playing out in the country of Belgium while Craig is a sailor stationed with NATO. And after the Belgians determined that Johanna's death was homicide, they took Craig into custody and Craig Becker was pissed. He argued, one, that he was innocent, and two, if he was going to be prosecuted, it should be by the United States because his military service was the only reason he and his wife were present in the country to begin with. Which that second part I'll give to him. I mean, he argued, hey, I'm a Navy hero, gosh darn it. He made his feelings known and he claimed that the Navy abandoned him by leaving him in the hands of the Belgian authorities. The same authorities that, according to him, confined him to his apartment and made him wear an electronic ankle bracelet after they released him from the Belgian authorities due to a long-term jail guard strike that led to serious human rights violations of the inmates. 
Oh my gosh, that was a mouthful. But that's like a story for a different podcast. But the Belgian authorities reasoned that Craig had to be confined to his house until the case was finalized because they said, one, he was a threat to society, but two, because he was a foreign national, he had a high probability of being a flight risk. While this is happening in Belgium and they're continuing their investigation, Craig's defense team filed a lawsuit in the United States, claiming that the U.S. should take jurisdiction of the case. Craig's defense wrote in their filings that it was ironic that Craig was being forced to stand trial in Belgium, quote, a system that does not provide the constitutional protections that Lieutenant Becker was prepared to die for on the battlefield, end quote. According to an article written in Task and Purpose, Craig, in addition to his American attorneys, he had a Belgian attorney assisting with his defense. And his Belgian attorneys agreed that the case should not be in Belgian hands because, because he argued that the American justice system and the Belgian justice system were very different. And he listed a few things, and these are just a few of the differences that they have. For starters, in Belgium, there's no speedy trial clock. So it's not like they have to basically have a sense of urgency in bringing people to trial. Additionally, defendants in a Belgian court do not have the right to cross-examine their witnesses and they cannot contest hearsay testimony. But finally, one of the big differences in Belgian courts is that in their courts, witnesses are asked sometimes to undergo hypnosis to try to recover memories which I think we in the United States used to do a very long time ago, or we used to allow it, but we definitely don't do that anymore. Well, with all of these differences, Craig's attorneys screamed up and down, and they questioned the competency of the Belgian authorities to take this case to begin with. In addition to the overall just differences in the American justice system and the Belgian justice system, Craig's defense attorney's biggest problem with the Belgian authorities was the fact that Johanna's death was initially ruled a suicide. But according to them, it wasn't until Johanna's parents pressured authorities to reopen the case that they then made a 180 turn and ruled Johanna's death a homicide. The defense argued that Johanna's parents were eager to get the cause of death changed due to a hefty life insurance policy in which they were the beneficiaries. According to Craig's defense, it was a seven-figure life insurance policy that excluded suicide. Thus, if the cause of death remained a suicide, Johanna's parents would not see a penny of that policy. The defense even went as far as to claim that Johanna's parents, who visited the crime scene, tampered with the evidence. Johanna's parents, of course, they denied these absurd allegations. In an interview with the Union Tribune, Johanna's father said that the insurance policy was only for $32,000 and that it was related to a car liability insurance of their daughter when she turned 16. The Union Tribune did a little digging into the claims made by the defense, and they found that Johanna's parents had their own independent wealth, with well over a million dollar real estate investment. Her heartbroken parents weren't even aware of the $32,000 insurance policy until they received the check. So when the defense's arguments against Johanna's parents didn't work, they doubled down on the Belgian authorities and how their investigation was lackluster at best. The defense claimed that the Belgian authorities failed to identify and interview a witness who came forward and said that she saw Johanna climb to the rooftop by herself and then just fall down. If this was true, 
this would be a good defense witness. I mean, it would be an excellent defense witness. This witness, according to the defense, even signed an affidavit swearing to her truthfulness and even agreed to testify at trial if asked to do so. But remember, there were the other witnesses who heard Johanna's screams and saw the man looking out the window. Ugh. This is one of those like real WTF cases when you have people coming out of the woodwork saying they've seen different things. All right, now let's talk a little bit more about the jurisdiction. If you've ever been in the military or know anything about military forces overseas, you know that the military, well, they like to try their own people. We don't like our business out in the streets. But in this particular case, it appeared that the Navy, specifically the U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa Command officials, they wanted nothing to do with Craig Becker's case. They even went as far as granting jurisdiction to the Belgians, which is the craziest thing I have ever heard. But in their defense, the, I'm quoting here, Navy, I'm quoting because I'm like, who, whoever they are, they thought that allowing the Belgians to try the case was in everyone's best interest, considering in their opinion, the evidence collected in Belgium by the Belgian authorities would potentially not be admissible in a U.S. military court-martial. Which is odd because that's never stopped us before. But Craig's defense team thought this was BS. They felt that Craig, given his top-secret security clearance and knowledge regarding U.S. nuclear weapons, would pose a national threat to the U.S., and they felt he should not be in trial in a foreign nation. And well, in January of 2018, the long jurisdictional battle came to an end when former Secretary of Defense James Mad Dog Mattis issued a memorandum stating that the U.S. military would take over the Craig case. And with that, the 2015 decision by the U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa Command was overruled. Now, you might be wondering, wait, what? Why was Mad Dog even involved in this case? Well, yeah, I know. I call him Mad Dog because we're cool like that. <laughs> well, listen, this is what happened. The memorandum came after Craig's defense team, as I mentioned earlier, filed a lawsuit against the former defense secretary and the Navy officials pursuant to Article 7 of the NATO Status of Forces Treaty, specifically the NATO Status of Forces Agreement, aka SOFA. Now, this can get really technical, but you just need to know that a SOFA is an agreement between two countries, a host country and a foreign country, that wishes to station its military in the host nation. Pursuant to the SOFA between Belgium and the United States in this particular case, the U.S. was allowed to have jurisdiction over crimes committed by U.S. service members if the military officials requested jurisdiction. In this case, the Navy initially refrained from doing so. But later, perhaps under pressure of the lawsuit, the former Secretary of Defense reversed that decision. Now, this jurisdiction issue kind of reminds me of a funny statement that one of my old bosses used to say. And he used to say, not my monkeys, not my circus. And I think that this is so fascinating, right? Because in this particular case, the Navy really should have taken this case. And the Belgians should have been like, take your dang people, like take your people. But for some reason, they didn't do that and the Navy didn't want it. But the Navy was probably trying to say, not my monkeys, not my circus to the Belgium. But the Belgians were like, no, no, no. This is your monkey. This is your circus. Skedaddle. And this really begs the question, why was the Navy so hesitant to take this case? 
Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. After the Secretary of Defense made his decision, the Naval Criminal Investigative Services, a.k.a. NCIS, they took over the investigation and Craig was released to the U.S. authorities for a court-martial proceeding. And although Craig won his lawsuit, he really didn't win anything because now the Navy was going after him for murder. Craig was formally arraigned on February 13, 2019 at Naval Base San Diego and charged with the premeditated murder of his wife. He was also charged with assault consummated by battery and conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. When Mara first researched this case for me, it was January of 2022. And Craig's case had been postponed for various reasons. One of the biggest reasons, of course, being COVID. But over and above that, there were tons of motions. And one motion worth mentioning here was a big success for Craig, at least initially. Of course, in this case, the government wanted to introduce evidence of that 2013 report that Johanna made and later recanted about the domestic abuse. And that was a time that he had strangled her. The government argued that this 2013 incident was crucial to their case to show that Craig had a motive to kill his wife in 2015. They thought his motive was to silence her because now that he could no longer control her because they were going to be separated, Craig feared, according to the prosecution, that Johanna might one day revive her allegation and Craig wanted to keep her quiet. To this, however, the defense said, pish posh, that's speculation and not supported by the evidence. The proceedings for this portion of what happened next, now this will happen in motion practice, but the proceedings for this portion of what happened next is very technical and legal, but it involves the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause and one's right to confront witnesses against the accused, and also it has to do with hearsay. The defense argued that the prosecution couldn't bring Johanna's statements in because their client, Craig, didn't have a right to confront a dead witness. And the prosecution was like, uh, yeah, that's our whole point, because he killed her. And the prosecution attempted to bring the statements in under something called forfeiture by wrongdoing exception to the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause and the hearsay rules. Now, bear with me. After two hearings, the military judge ruled in favor of Craig. 
Johanna's statements after Craig's prior abuse would not be allowed as evidence at trial. Now, this was a huge blow to the prosecution's case and almost made it seem like the case was dead in the water. But the prosecution appealed that decision and the Navy and Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals ruled in its decision dated July 24, 2020, that the military judge got it wrong. He used the wrong legal standard in making his decision. So the appellate court sent it back to the military judge to use the correct legal standard. And this is called a remand. However, on remand, even though the military judge reconsidered the evidence in light of the appellate court's decision, the judge ultimately ruled the same. Johanna's statements would be inadmissible at trial. And the prosecution appealed yet again. This time, the Navy and Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals ruled in favor of the government. And that decision came down on February 25th, 2021. The appellate court vacated the military judge's ruling. And the appellate court ruled that the statements at issue were admissible under the forfeiture by wrongdoing exception. The case was then returned to the military judge to continue proceedings, which, listen, I don't know. That must be so tough, you know, as a judge to have another court overrule your rulings. I wonder if the same judge remained on the rest of the case. The answer is probably yes. But I do wonder if how difficult that is for an attorney judge to continue on. But that's the nature of this career, right? Throughout the trial process and at trial, which took place in April of 2022, we learn a few things that are kind of appalling. For example, on October 6, 2015, just two days before Johanna's fall, Craig went to the Belgian police to make a weird allegation slash police statement, I guess. According to an appellate opinion, Craig reported to the Belgian authorities that he was concerned about the people that Johanna had picked to help her move to her new apartment. One of the people that Craig was complaining about was Johanna's new boyfriend. Basically, Craig wanted the police to know that Johanna had made it clear to him that she was going to raise hell if he tried to interfere with her move. Craig also told police that Johanna was an alcoholic and that she drank anywhere from half a bottle to three quarters of a bottle of wine per night and that drinking made her pretty emotional. Then Craig looked at the authorities and was like, "Um, hello, are you writing this down? You need to write this down. What in the world? But wait, it gets better. After leaving the police station, Craig, who was saying that his soon-to-be ex-wife was an alcoholic, he went to the store and bought more wine for the apartment that he shared with Johanna. Now, remember the medication Zolpidem found in Johanna's toxicology report? Well, it comes in pink round pills and is a sedative. Well, one of Craig's coworkers recalled seeing Craig come into his old office to pick up a little baggie of small round pink pills the day before Johanna died. And guess what else? After Johanna died, Craig tried to keep things real mom about her death because he didn't want his ex-wife finding out about it. Because get this, he was in the middle of a custody battle with his ex-wife over his two sons. And he was concerned that if she found out about Johanna's death, something would happen to keep him from being successful in that custody battle. Well, after it was all said and done, at Craig's court-martial, 
he was convicted of premeditated murder, assault consummated by battery, and two specifications of conduct on becoming an officer. The trial took place, as I said, in April of 2022, and he was ultimately sentenced to a dismissal from the Navy and life in prison with the possibility of parole. I really wish that I could tell you more about the court-martial, but honestly, I didn't even know there was a court-martial taking place, and not even the Navy Times reported on the specifics of the actual trial. I find this case to be, in my personal opinion, so odd, and I really do wonder why the Navy kept this case so quiet. I mean, I'm already in episode 110. We talk about these cases all the time. What makes this case different from all the others that are highly reported on in the Navy Times and Stars and Stripes and all that jazz? Before I let you go, though, for those of you wondering what happened to Johanna's little girl, she is actually being cared for by Johanna's parents. Make sure that you follow me on social media where I will keep you posted if I hear anything else about this case. You can find me on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on TikTok at Military Margot with a T at the end. Just a reminder that there are tons of perks for joining the Patreon fan club, such as ad-free episodes all the way to episode one, bonus episodes, and you even get to purchase a podcast challenge coin if you really want to show your support. A quick thanks to Mara for her help with writing this episode. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and is produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. This month's newest associate producers are TQ, Brittany, and Karen from The Airplane. Hey girl, hey! <laughs> my newest assistant producers are Elise, Madison, Christina, and Jesse. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. I was working on her podcast. I don't want to.